previously on Storyological. <laughs> I tell you, the thing that I've been doing that makes Storyological a little harder is that I've been speaking at a lot of conferences and kind of getting bored of the sound of my own voice. The good thing about Storyological is that it is not prepped and is also not repeated. We just do it once. We talk about whatever the hell we want. Whereas the conferences I've been speaking at is like, oh, I've given the same talk like six times. Have you considered recording yourself giving the talk? <laughs> and then just playing the video. Or um, just playing the audio and uh, lip syncing. Miming. Mime, miming? Sure, yeah. miming. Don't even yeah. lip sync to it. Just go through the motions literally without moving <laughs> your mouth. Pantomime it. <gasps> I would be into that. What have you been doing? You've been selling stories? Yes. Yeah, a couple of my stories were accepted this week. One to uh, a lit mag called Passages North and one to a fab mag, another fabulous mag uh, called Bourbon Pen. Neither one of those stories will come out until many months from now. Yeah. And so I will tell you more about them then. Mm -hmm. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerood. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is A City Inside by Tilly Walden. It is a delicate and ambitious comic book. It is a slim volume of great girth. No, that's nothing. That's nothing. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a slim volume of much depth. It uh, takes us on a journey through the entire life of a young girl. A young girl who grew up in the southern part of the U.S., a sentence I would normally relate as a girl who grew up in the South, which is the way it's related in the book, but I feel like we're a cosmopolitan podcast. The South might not mean the same thing to everyone. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So this young girl grows up in the southern part of the U.S. and finds herself later a young woman living in the sky with a cat named Nancy. And there is later a romance. Our young girl falls out of the sky and deeply in love with a woman. And you get the questions that normally arise when you fall out of the sky and into love, which is, is it worth it? I mean, I gave up the sky for this person. Is it great? And you go on from there as she makes her decision about love, as she finds a city that is seemingly built up out of her and around her and she lives there alone until her death <laughs> and by the time you reach the end of this woman's life and you turn the pages and see that in a sense you've experienced the story of someone as much as you've experienced the life of someone there was for me in the pages and in the panels and in the space between the panels this whole weight and beauty of time passing and collecting and all the little and big moments of your life and yeah time and space that is something that this comic plays with and comics in general have so much fine control over i love the way a comic like this forces space in between the words and in between the sentences um because it's 48 page comic but I would be surprised if there's more than a thousand words in it. And so each panel, you know, ranges between nothing and a limit, like 10 words. And so every idea is given this weight, exactly what you were saying, this weight and time. And she even references it in the story, right? So she has this cat called Nancy, but when she leaves her lover, she leaves the cat with her. 
and the cat having been part of what anchored her to reality, the weight on her lap of Nancy as she slept. And she leaves that that anchoring with her lover as she departs. I think that both inside of the text, um, you know, with as the story develops, and then in the form and structure of how the comic is put together, she has constructed the journey so that every line, be it drawn or written, has this weighty meaning. I have a kind of ongoing theory of books that involve soulmates, which is every once in a while you'll encounter a book and whether or not it's it's the best book you've ever read, there's just a recognition, like when you meet someone, just like, oh, I can fall in love with you. And maybe I will read you for the rest of my life some things I would like more than others, mm -hmm. but I will enjoy growing old with you and seeing you grow old and seeing what happens. And that was the feeling I had in this book, the same way when I when I met Kelly Link, not literally, but <laughs> when you met her in, stories. Yes, when I met uh, when I met the space between her words. Um, so this story is constructed in three parts. Kind of the the first and last part are very small and seem to take place in more or less the reality we know, where perhaps a girl has gone to a counselor or to a guided meditation. I don't know. But she lays upon a bed and she's guided into this reverie that is the whole middle of the book. Um, and so you could be disappointed by coming out of that reverie with her coming out of the room and feeling like what you've read is just a dream. But even though I felt it a little bit, like when I turned the page, where I reached the end of that reverie and I was back in reality and I was like, oh yeah, this kind of all happened inside of the space of her lying down on a bed. Mm -hmm. I then kind of catapulted into thinking, oh, it's like, it's like so many of my favorite stories that are kind of like a ship in a bottle story or an infinity in a basement story. Stories like at the end of this comic, the, the lover who is waiting for her, who we realize maybe this young woman has gone to this therapy to, to, to work through her fears about giving up the sky for this woman. That lover is reading a book called Inkheart, which is a book, which is a story about the kind of permeable boundaries between books and reality. So like the books contain this great infinity of realities that spills over into the real world. And when I looked it up, one of the ways that book was described was an adventure into narrative. And this kind of story that, that Tilly has told feels like that to me. It reminds me of those Doctor Who episodes where the doctor visits, you know, the Madame de Pompadour on and off again throughout her whole life. And that to me, somehow through this comic, I reached this realization of Doctor Who and how a lot of Doctor Who stories, the way they're structured, there is much about the stories that people tell and think about the doctor as they are about the doctor themselves. And that brought me closer to this story, this feeling that we were getting away inside of a character that was as much about a story they were telling themselves as it was about the way they went about their life. Like, why isn't the story someone dreams for themselves as important as the brand of cigarette they smoke? When I came to the part where you come out of the reverie and she's back in the back in the bed and and you do forget as you're going through the story that, that this is all of inside of the frame. I felt so excited with a possibility because there's something so poignant and sad about the arc of this relationship that 
happens and is full of such potential but is then destroyed and she leaves but when she comes out of that she comes out of that room and her lover is waiting there for her and you just think this is a story about possibility about changing your own future about not having to be bound up in the isolation from which you come but to be able to choose your partner to be with your partner and not to run away from what that means I think I thought about it as being the falsehood of binary choices so in the reverie the girl is thinking you know she's stuck between uh I gave up the sky for her but she loves her she wants to be with her but she wants to be in the sky she sees it as a very binary choice and yet the coming out and back into the frame story helps you think well, you know, maybe she's going to develop the skills to understand that their life can be a negotiation. It doesn't have to be stay and be unhappy or go and be happy, right? It's not about pretending to be the person who can be in this relationship. It's about being the person you are as honestly as you can to figure out what the relationship should be. Yeah, yeah. And also, I felt like there was a lot of power in feeling like that story, that reverie, allows her that space. Kind of going through the process of telling a story of herself to herself that goes all the way back to the past, into the present, and into the future helps give her the sense that she has the sky, that she never lost the sky, that she still has all of these cities inside of her, all of these possibilities. And here's one city, and here's one city, mm -hmm. and she can wander down them all the days of her life, no matter how much the world may seem to narrow for her, like here is a reminder that there is this infinity, this bigger thing. And that infinity is in the panels. There is a life inside of her images that reminds me so much of Miyazaki. And when I went on her website, mm -hmm. I saw some fan art she had done of Ghibli characters. And I thought, yes, I see that there is in the little girl's bedroom when she's remembering growing up in the south there are fish floating in the shadows around her bed and when she's a young woman going to work on the bus there's this businessman with just this giant sad crooked blob of a face in the background <laughs> there's over and over again a feeling that the life in this story is haunted by other forms of beautiful and magical life that could be seen as scary through someone's eyes but just like in the, the great Miyazaki films, that terror, that magic is, is wrapped up in this kind of stillness and wonder that just is everywhere. Yeah, I think that's a, a, great, a great reference point for this. There's a, a sweet safety on the edge of fear or on the edge of destruction. So like one of my favorite panels is where you see this girl sleeping in a kind of kind of an open-edged capsule that's floating amongst the stars and her bedding and her hair is spilling out of the side of it she looks like she's in danger of uh, being sucked into a vacuum and dying a horrible death yet the way it is put together is she looks comfortable and happy and Nancy the cat is sleeping on her tummy and she looks safe and it's got this kind of uh, juxtaposition of those two ideas that really remind me of being 15 
right, of being so thrilled about the future, so kind of, but at the same time, so overwhelmed by what it might hold and feeling completely ill-equipped to deal with any of it. And yet also feeling certain beyond anything else that I was going to be the best at it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Another one of my favorite panels. uh, She's gone to the city as a young woman and the image is of the whole city just tilted slightly to the right. And there's an image of her, a silhouette on a balcony, tilting out into it. And I'll, I'll read you what it says. It says on that panel, which is stark, completely black and white, the words say, all you really wanted was quiet. And then the next page is one of those images of her up in the sky, tilted, almost falling out. And it says, so you decided the sky would be better and began to live there. I mean, I love children's book language. I love children's books. I love these kind of sentences where there's a girl in a city and she wanted quiet. So she decided to live in the sky and began to live there. And now you're in a completely new reality. And I love how the one image of the girl in the city is cramped down here at the bottom of the page. Mm -hmm. One of many panels of city life crammed with people. And then the image of her in the sky is almost entirely white, little clouds sketched in. It takes up the whole page. Something that I thought a lot about in this book was beauty and different ways of performing beauty of motion or of moments and how there are moments in this story that are broken down in the way that Scott McCloud might talk about seeing in Japanese comic comics where it is one moment and you see different images from inside that moment or maybe different images only a split second advanced so you really sink into it like there's an there's a moment where the woman she's in love with is eating a dumpling and the panels are just like one bite after another and then the dumpling's gone such familiarity and and love in it yeah and then there are moments like what i was just describing where you're in a city and then in the sky where it's that transition that leap out into into something different completely different that is thrilling. That one too that you pulled out was something I, I wanted to talk about because it is thrilling. It's the moment where the story takes off both literally and metaphorically. And you go from uh, t- learning about this girl's past and the, how she lived with her dad in this big lonely house to how she's determining her future and how she leaps from this crowded city into the skies. And you're like, what is that sky representing? I have no idea, but it feels so full of potential. Oh, it's like, it's like it gives the story kinetic energy. You know, when you roll a ball up a hill, when you move the story out of its original context like that, it suddenly has all of this potential energy and you feel that, that thrill that it could go anywhere and be anything. There's a line near the end where inside of this reverie, inside of this leaping into the unknown where the girl is an older woman walking through the city that has erupted around her and the city is entirely empty except for her and there's a panel of an empty room with an open door looking out into the sky and the city and it says it's open spaces waiting for you to fill them up with everything you have And for me, that was the magic of this comic. It's the magic of that kind of writing and drawing, that there are so many empty spaces that aren't exactly empty. They're they're potential. They're waiting for you to fill them up with everything you have. And 
I've, you know, I've read this now two or three times and I just feel myself pulled into it. It's like, it's like the meaning isn't pouring out of the book. The meaning is pouring into it from I, me. I, I wrote at the end of my notes, just this one line that says the magic of possibility. Emma, do you save the about the author section for the end of the book? Like yes. you don't get to it, you don't read it until you I get to the end. I never read in any introduction or foreword or anything about the author until I finish a book because I'm afraid that it might contain things that will change my view of the writing. That's true. Do you try to avoid reading the title of a book before you read the book? I mean, I have tried to do that one time, but it was really hard. I mean, because I've imagined doing that for a character... Uh, but never in real life. Because I, I will say, uh, as you're about to launch into this discussion, knowing this book is called, this book where the story came from is called The Refugee, it does affect my reading of the story. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And there are other stories in the collection that are much more directly about individuals who are, you know, more literally refugees, either in flight or... Uh, in the current moment or who mm. have previously previously left their homelands stories that would in a museum more e easily be called you know a story upon the refugee experience <laughs> which right. we can ponder as we move from image to image um, but i picked this one i picked the transplant because of two things one is that it is in many ways much more indirect in the way it deals with the idea and also that its tone is kind of quite different to most of the other stories it's much less earnest earnest sounds negative i don't mean that i don't mean it to sound negative but they're just very the tone in in the transplant is much it feels almost like it's about to lurch off the rails into absurdism sometimes which is really exciting even though it never does but it contains that possibility my pick this week is The Transplant by Viet Thanh Nguyen in The Refugees, his collection from 2017. It's the story of Arthur and his liver, his transplanted liver. <laughs> There's your, your fourth in the ongoing series of Emma's children's books. <laughs> Arthur and his liver. Mm. Joe and his thyroid. <laughs> Sally and her kidneys. Um... And and his friendship with his friendship with Louis, the son of the liver donor, and Arthur is this kind of biddable, feckless lump of a man who has who is able to pull failure from even the most uh, exciting opportunity, and he has become friends with Louis after finding out the name of his donor by through a bug in the hospital records department. He finds out that the, the liver belonged to a guy called Men Vu. So he calls around all of the families called Vu in the area. And eventually one person says, yeah, I'm the guy you're looking for. This guy was my father. And they develop this friendship. And it becomes the one thing that Arthur really has for himself because he's fucked everything else up so badly. His wife hates him. His brother thinks he's a useless lump. He's gambled away all his money. He has no friends. And yet his friendship with Louis is this kind of freedom for him. It opens his eyes to other types of existence. Louis takes him to Vietnamese restaurants. He talks to him about, you know, how he should treat his wife better. He, you know, is a pretty dodgy character, 
making and selling fake goods. But yet, Arthur is thrilled by all of this and feels, I guess, an excitement that he hasn't felt in a long time. Emma, do you know the, do you know the story that this reminded me of? Tell me. Oh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So right, Louis makes or partakes in the sale, 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 sale of faux luxury goods. You mm-hmm. know, designer knockoffs. Better than real. Better than real. And there's a conversation that Louis and Arthur have. Well, mostly Louis has with himself in and around Arthur where Louis says a couple of things. He says, it's like beautiful people and ugly people. Beautiful people can't let on that they need ugly people, but without the ugly, the beautiful wouldn't look half as good. Am I right? Tell me I'm right. And then a bit later he says, the moral of the story is this, the more fakes there are, the more that people who can't buy the real things want them. And the more people buy the fakes, the more the real things are worth. Everybody wins. Uh, and it's very early in the story. And, you know, top tip, pro tip, reading stories. If two characters are having an argument really near the beginning of the story. That's probably the theme. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> the theme. It's probably right there. Just just unpick it. And there's a lot that you can pick out of that. One, I love the irreducible logic of it. Like, it's just true. It is true that the more fakes are out there and the more people buy them, the more the real things may be increase in value because the real things become rarer or they become more valuable in the sense they're, that they're more wanting. exposed so people and you know hear about them or see right see the fakes and therefore want the real thing yes but i also love the kind of inevitable conclusion of that which is like i think of it like a mathematical function you take the limit to infinity there is a place where you get to the point where there are so many fakes that the real thing has infinite value and also zero existence. Mm -hmm. And that's what reminded me a bit of Blade Runner 2049, which in its own way is about a kind of refugee experience, about how you define yourself as real in a culture that defined you as unreal. And the tragedy of Blade Runner 2049 is all about how the characters in that story that are refugees within their own societies who are oppressed end up trying to define themselves as real according to the definitions of the people whose power is built on the fact that they can't be real. Right in that little conversation is the beginning of the unpickings of this idea of the binary way of thinking, that there are real things and there are fake things, and that the real things need the fake things to define themselves. The, the one and the other rely on each other. I think the point, the, the culmination of that point goes through the arc of um, Arthur discovering that Louis really is not the child of the or the son of the guy who donated his liver. It's a completely different family. And Arthur finds himself really unable to confront Louis, unable to make the best of the situation. And the story ends with a very low-key confrontation between him and his wife Norma in the garage as he comes home after failing to confront Louis. And he looks at his empty hands and sees himself as she must see him. And I think that, you know, there is this moment for him where I guess he sees himself as one of the ugly people. That he thinks that maybe Norma and his brother Martin, who employs him and gives them amazing discount on their rent are the beautiful people. But what I, what we don't get and what I'm fascinated by is 
what does he think about what that means about them, about how they see him or about the less than generous ways they see him and the relationship that they have with him. They do him kindnesses, but do they do it for generous reasons or do they do it for selfish reasons? And he never really questions that. In fact, Arthur is a character that never really questions anything. You know, it doesn't occur to him when he rings Louis and Louis says, yeah, I'm the guy you're looking for. It never occurs to him to sort of say, oh, you know, let's check. Is there any way we can follow up on this? He just he just rolls along with it uh, at all times, even though Louis then turns out to be a complete trickster character, right? He is selling all of these fake goods. Do you know the story that this made me think of? The Velveteen Rabbit. No, but it is a kid's story. Well, it's a a fairy tale. It's Jack and the Beanstalk. Because I thought about Louis being the kind of guy that sells magic beans. You know, he's selling these fake wallets. And what do they turn into? And instead of a beanstalk, what Arthur gets is this friendship. But the friendship takes him to a place that isn't that great because of the lie that it's based on you know it takes him to a place where his wife and his brother think even less of him than they did before at the end of jack and the beanstalk jack slays the giant what we don't get in this story which is both understandable and yet somewhat frustrating is getting to see our slay anything in his life at the end he has a very modest arc I ended this story feeling just as frustrated with Arthur as I did at the beginning. The, his own, his tiny bit of growth is just that through his friendship he with Louis, he is able to learn to distinguish a different Asian group people from each other and learn to appreciate Vietnamese food. And in some ways, I love that. And I think that is such a reflection of the reality of how some people live and in other ways i really wanted more yeah yeah i think much like blade runner 2049 the story is tragic i don't i don't really i didn't really get the feeling that arthur had gone through an arc where he where he had learned how to see people necessarily better what I felt like I had seen was a kind of Greek tragedy where a character's tragic flaw leads them to make the same mistakes over and over again until a final kind of fatality, not in the Mortal Kombat sense, but like in the, oh my God, I've, I've done something horrible and I don't know what to do. Because I felt what, what defined a lot of the story was when Louis is talking about the fake luxury goods and why they're important, Arthur says, aren't you just saying what you want to hear? And Louis says to that, of course, I'm just saying what I want <laughs> to hear. Yeah, I'm just telling myself this stuff. The question is, if you want to hear what I'm telling myself and believe in it. And what I find is like Louis's character, even though he's the liar, even though he's the one that's selling fake goods, he's in control of his own story not just the story of his life but the stories he chooses to believe in whereas arthur the 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 crux of this story is all about his friendship with louis like you say and the and the great sadness is that once he realized louis lied to him he decides he can't be friends with him anymore because that's not the way he was raised that's not a nice thing to do he's stuck still in this view of you did a bad thing or you're no longer who i think you are 
So our friendship isn't real anymore. And I think I too felt a kind of disappointment at the end of the story when I first read it because it felt like there was such a neat stacking of themes that was a bit, it was so predictable. Like I opened and I saw the title was The Transplant and I was like, oh right, like a refugee is a transplant. Oh right, and it's like transplant organ and the body wants to reject it because it's foreign like I can see what you're doing here like and that's why the museum thing was in my mind because I could like see the introduction to the exhibit of the story on the wall talking about how it puts all these themes together but even though the writing doesn't have what Joseph Allen Hill might say he wants which is an operatic quality you know that doesn't feel like there's great twists of drama and I think I enjoy his quiet pain in a uncomfortable kind of a way and and what you said about louis being in control of his own story is so true like that that kind of shrug that arthur ends with is him being unable to take control of his story being unable to redefine his friendship with louis or you know save his marriage or really change his relationship with his brother he's he's stuck it felt like to me whereas tilly's story had all of this empty space for us to fill. When I read this story, it felt like there wasn't as much empty space, but as I thought about it, it felt like there were all of these little trap doors that you could fall down, little choose-your-own-adventures to rework the symbols the way you wanted. You can read the story straight through and think, oh, Louis from Vietnam, Arthur's been living in the U.S. for however long his family's been in the U.S. And so you could think of Louis representing some kind of refugee experience experience because he does talk about how he came from China but he never lived in China and he grew up in Vietnam so what am I and yet it's Arthur who seems out of his depth at all times <laughs> Arthur who's the one that is a refugee like his own body is in need of asylum from itself and is asking for help and Louis in a sense is the capitalist ideal, the guy that's like, real, fake, whatever, let's just make some money. Sure, what I'm selling isn't real. You know, I'm the great, I'm the Gatsby of this story. I'm the guy doing whatever it takes to make myself, and you're you're a schlump. And, uh, and there is a moment where Louis says to Arthur, after Arthur's like, you've lied to me, none of this is real, where Louis says, well, maybe you should just go back home, Arthur. Where I was like, oh yeah I love this little trap door like there's nothing in this story that literally should pre that prepares you for Arthur being given the line you should go back home which mm -hmm. because I'm reading a book called The Refugee hmm. that echoes all around my mind and I was like oh yeah that's cool I mean it's sad mm -hmm. but it was cool in the story I don't know that this story is especially representative of the collection uh, I picked I picked the one that was somehow the most repressed because whilst because and I think that comes from the fact we get very little of Arthur Arthur's internal monologue whereas although a lot of the other stories are written from the perspective of people who are trapped you get a lot more of their of the drama inside them that 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 causes and I love, you know, we talked about space with Tilly in, and I think there is a lot of space in this to wonder about who Arthur is and why he makes these terrible decisions that he does. Like at no point do we explore that, even though we find out, you know, it's just mentioned in passing that he lost all his money and seven days of his life in, I forget what city it is, some city that's famous for gambling. 
And I really enjoyed the the outline that that painted and thinking about all of those decisions and what kind of person drifts into the path that he has taken. Thanks for listening, readers. We probably didn't manage to talk about all the things about these stories or about all the stories that you've loved recently. So if you have any suggestions for things we should have said or stories that we should read, you can always find us on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvols. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. You can find and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash storylogical. If you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you have, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It helps other people find us, and we love it when that happens. And of course, as continues to be the case, if you are opposed to iTunes for whatever reason, for example, the fact that it's now called Apple Podcasts, sometimes, even though it's still iTunes, uh, you can do some other stuff. You've got the socials. You've got the socials, The yeah. medias. Um, you've got the real people. The real people the in, people your, in life. your life. Yeah. Where you can, like, you got post-it notes. Them. Pushing post-it notes under doors. I like that as yeah, a method Just sticking them up on telephone poles. Anything. <laughs> Get the word out there. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, that's well, right. We've lost our thread. Uh, and of course, for show notes, links to past episodes, gifts of an appropriate and inappropriate nature, uh, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. You know the secret that I found for, for having your stories accepted? Send them out. Um, okay, so there are three secrets. <laughs> One is write a story. That's the first secret. Good. I and like you got to be sure to finish it. That's the key to that secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second secret is send it out uh, electronically or by mail. Really, either one works. Mm-hmm. Um, telepathically does not work yet. Uh, but maybe we can do some AR submissions soon. Uh, we'll, we'll virtually. How would that work? <laughs> no, no. You'll yeah. augment your reality with the idea that you submitted it. And it doesn't matter whether you did or not. It's just, you can just, because you'll go to the mailbox and with your augmented reality goggles on goggles. and your goggles, your augmented reality goggles on, and you will witness yourself putting the uh, story into the mailbox, uh-huh. but it's and not real. But it would be nice if that would be like linked to your email function, your email <laughs> app. And so that would. That is definitely the future. The future <laughs> is you go into your study and you lift the cover from your turntable and you place a record on it and none (laughs) of that is real and the music just comes out of the speakers (laughs) and you can pretend that you're listening to it on vinyl that is the future so true